90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? I'm getting pretty excited. (laughs) What are you excited about? (laughs) Like, what SciPy is to you, the Geological Society of America meeting is to me. (laughs) So (laughs) I'm leaving for it in a day. It's next week where all the geology nerds gather in Denver, and I'm very excited about it. Yes, it is time for GSA, but it's not always in Denver. Like, AGU is always in San Francisco. This meeting moves around. Right, exactly. Last year it was in Baltimore, and then actually the Geological Society of America meeting is going to be in Canada the next couple years. It was in Canada (laughs) two years ago. (laughs) So, uh, yeah, maybe we should go GSNA or something like that. Um, (laughs) Right. But Denver is their home, um, the home office for GSA. So, well, Boulder is... Um, so the Denver meeting is always like a lot bigger and a lot more people. And so, and this year I have no obligations and I'm very excited about that. <laughs> oh, nice. Are, yeah. are you doing a poster or, or anything? A talk? No, nope, I am not. Um, I started to get one ready and a bunch of stuff came up in terms of teaching. And I was like, nope, I'm not even going to do this. So I'm just going for fun. Oh, wow. Cool. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I can't wait. Um, and it's going to be cold in Denver, and that's nice because it's been in the mid-90s here in Oklahoma. Right. <laughs> With, like, 80% humidity, and it's awful, so I'm ready to go. Well, I have actually, earlier this week, been recording with another podcast. <gasps> you cheater. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, don't, I don't know how to feel about this, John. Maybe we should talk about this <laughs> off the air. So I actually got invited to come on Embedded.fm and uh, talk to Alicia and Chris White. And it was an absolute ton of fun. And the show is out. It came out a couple days before our show will come out, actually. So you can go and find it and hear us talk about electronics and Python and some geology, uh, answer some lightning round questions like, what's your favorite fictional robot? And the episode is called Sit on Top of a Volcano. Oh, my goodness. Um, obviously, Marvin is your favorite fictional robot, right? I, I said Data. <gasps> oh, man. Boy, that's hard. Okay, yep. Both of yeah. those tug at my intellectual heartstrings. <laughs> right. Dang, I forget about Data. So lifelike. <laughs> <laughs> I had a huge crush on Brent Spiner growing up, too. Ah, okay. Yeah. But I digress. (laughs) The other thing is, we actually uh, got an interesting email from listener Aaron. This is Aaron Soddy. And he said, you know, we were kind of poking fun at rendering graphics with a network of Amigas. And he said, turns out (laughs) that uh, the pilot of Babylon 5, which got an Emmy for its special effects, was in fact rendered by a network of Amigas. (laughs) Uh, and later they went to, was it 12 Pentiums, 5 DEC Alphas, and 3 Macs to put together everything? <laughs> yes, I think we've been shamed. <laughs> yes, so I will put, there's a link, uh, I'll put that in the show notes. Also, he noted that the uh, the beginning of Deep Space Nine, there's a welder working outside, and that was apparently blatantly ripped off from the intro of Babylon 5 with mm. all of this Wonderful Amiga rendering. (laughs) Shame, DS9. (laughs) (laughs) 
Uh, that website was a pretty good read, so you should go take a look at it, definitely, because it's pretty funny. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, so you planned this show out and told me your idea, and I thought this would be a lot of fun because it is an important year for the National Park Service. And now that it's cooling down, the Western National Parks are going to be uh, maybe a little more pleasant to visit if you're in the area. <laughs> Uh, well, I, say, I will say Yellowstone National Park, you know, there's been a lot of um, fires out in Yellowstone and Grand Teton, and they tweeted, and this was two weeks ago, they tweeted and said, well, maybe this will help, and it was a picture of a totally snow-covered field. <laughs> so it's already snowing <laughs> in many of the Western parks, and people are probably going to take refuge in the few national parks in Texas, I'm guessing. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah, so anyone that knows me or has taken a class with me or listens to this podcast ever <laughs> knows that I'm a massive fan of the National Park Service and um, take my classes to the National Parks and I go as much as I can and I know that whenever you actually do go outside, John, you frequent them as well. <laughs> uh, yes, when I do leave the cave, it is a place <laughs> that I like to be uh, going out on some trails and seeing some of the sites in the parks because they're these great preserves and they're just gorgeous. Uh, right, exactly. Um, so the big deal, if you haven't heard, um, is that the National Park Service turned 100 this year. And so um, August 25th, I think, in 1916 was when the National Park Service became a thing. And there's a lot of big celebrations going on all over the country. I know you could get in free for that week and all kinds of great stuff. Um, and even those of us that don't live near any national parks like me <laughs> also you know i mean they've done all kinds of things at the state and local level too to sort of help celebrate uh with the nps so it's been sort of an exciting year i think um it was an exciting year last year leading up to it and then being in a couple of national parks this year and sort of feeling that whole you know excitement it's been really neat i mean a lot of stuff has aired about the national park service in terms of bad stuff too this year and that's probably good everyone sort of kind of needs to be you know reflect on the good and the bad so hopefully it'll get even better going forward because of that right so do you do you have a national park pass one of the yearly passes do i have one of course <laughs> i do <laughs> even though i live in a state without national parks uh yeah i generally buy the national park pass um just because you know when i go on field trips and stuff like that it's 80 bucks and you get in anywhere for free so it's it's worth it if you even go to, so like, five national parks a year or four national parks. Some of them are kind of expensive, $25 to get into. So, Yeah, when I was going around the, the desert southwest on a trip, I bought one, and it was really great, and then used it a little bit up here. But I haven't had one in a while because I haven't had a chance to get out of the cave. <laughs> <laughs> uh, maybe soon. Maybe soon you'll you'll rethink that. No, they're good for a year. Uh, only two different people can use them. That's sort of the only downfall. You can't hand them to somebody else to use. Um, right. Because I have always had my ID checked whenever I present it. But um, it's totally worth it. They're, they're great. I think it goes to a good cause. So, um, yeah, I'm a huge fan of the national park system. Right, and they're doing a lot to get more people into the parks and exploring uh, all the stuff that they've got to offer, right? Right, so this was sort of uh, in conjunction with the White House. They came out with this initiative to get every fourth grader into a national park. Um, so if you have a kid that's in fourth grade, you can go to this website that we've linked in the show notes, and every fourth grader gets free admission to the national parks, all of them. 
and and monuments for an entire year. So, I mean, that's an $80 value, <laughs> but it's pretty awesome. Um, in conjunction with the National Park Foundation, which is sort of a private funding agency that helps the National Park Service, they're even doing stuff like transporting students and going on field trips where, you know, lots of schools are cutting a lot of these sort of activities they've done before. So the National Park Foundation has stepped in and eliminating all these barriers to get kids, you know, out into nature. There's a lot of push for technology in schools, but there should also be sort of a lot of push to get kids outside and see, especially if they don't get to go to these places, see what's out there. Oh, yes. But so one thing that people may be thinking is 100 years is a long time, but we've had parks for much longer than that. Right. So how how did this work before the National Park Service was created? Right. And I think it, we, we could really go all the way back to the first national park. Right. Good old Yellowstone, right? Right. <laughs> have you been there? I have not been to Yellowstone <gasps> yet. Oh, Oh, shame of shames. <laughs> I know. I've never actually been close enough uh, with enough time to be able to go. It's uh, quite unfortunate. Yeah, that's definitely something you need in Yellowstone, but we'll talk about that upcoming. But yeah, so it's the first national park. And I guess when people, I've had people say that to me, what, they're only 100 years old, but isn't Yellowstone much older? So yes, it was created uh, by Congress on March 1st, 1872. I kind of love this quote from the uh, the congressional thing on it is as a public park or pleasuring ground for the benefit and enjoyment of the people. So Yellowstone is over two million acres. Um, if you don't know, it's in the northwest corner of Wyoming and the adjacent parts of Montana and Idaho right there, just a tiny little sliver of Idaho, are part of this two million acres in this Yellowstone geo-ecosystem. Um, and it's well over 100 years old. And when it was founded, they put it under the direction of the Department of the Interior. Right. So DOI has been around for, well, I don't know when DOI started, but quite a yeah, long time. I don't know. Yeah, a, a very long time. Um, and that might sound familiar to people because that's where the National Park Service resides now. But that wasn't always true for the first national parks and monuments. Okay, so I just looked it up, and it turns out DOI was 1849, so it's 167 oh. years old. Okay, and so that's, you know, a good 40, 30 years before the first national park. Right. And Yellowstone, I mean, as well as being our first national park, it's kind of the first modern national park in the world, actually, which I thought was kind of interesting. So what do you mean modern national park? I mean, you know, there were places that people went and sort of set aside, but I think putting a government agency in control of a public land space. Okay. Yeah. 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 So like there were places, but this was sort of a very, these are the boundaries. We're in control of these public lands. Somebody's going to run this thing. And that was sort of the model for a bunch of the other countries that have national parks. Okay, yeah. Well, so then Teddy Roosevelt turns out to be the person to make the next step in 1906 with the Antiquities Act. Right. Um, so this sort of came about to protect these archaeological and anthropological sites in the Southwest. I mean, anyone that's traveled in the Southwest has seen lots of these um, sort of desert varnish, chipped 
paintings and the cliff dwellings and a lot of abandoned and ruined pueblos. And so the Antiquities Act was signed to protect these spaces as sort of national monuments. And so it's different than a national park, right? It says historic landmarks, historic and prehistoric structures, and other objects of historic or scientific interest, which I like to feel is really broadly placed, right? Right. So they're not necessarily human-made, but they're an object, not a big area of land. And we say units because the National Park Service isn't just national parks. It's the national monuments and historical landmarks are also under the purview. And so over a quarter of them, so about a hundred or so, were directly made from the Antiquities Acts in 1906. Wow, yeah. That's yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So I just imagine this like Teddy Roosevelt who, you know, everyone thinks of as this sort of rugged frontiersman. He you can't go to a national park in the West that doesn't have a picture of him there. And it just seems like it's like, okay, great, we did this, so now let's make all these national parks. And I imagine that was a really cool sort of time for the environment, you know? Yeah, but at the same time, so that was 1906, and over the next decade or so, things started to get kind of fragmented as there was no unifying body leading all of these monuments and parks. Right, so he said that the Department of Interior is where Yellowstone's uh, headquarters sort of resided in the government. But there were a lot of other places, too. You know, the Forest Service, which is in the Department of Agriculture, had a lot of public land, as they still do now. And also the War Department as well, which I thought was interesting. Hmm. And then in Washington, D.C., if you've ever been to the National Mall, so those are all run by the National Park Service as well. So if you go to any of the you know, the Vietnam Veterans Memorial or the Lincoln Memorial or anything, that's all National Park Service, but it used to be run by an independent entity in Washington, D.C. Right. So then this is where Woodrow Wilson comes in in August of 1916, 100 years ago, August 25th, 1916, and signed the Organic Act. I didn't know that's what this was called. (laughs) I will say. It's a... A non-descriptive name. Isn't it? (laughs) I like that. (laughs) So people say politics has gotten bad. It was just as, you know, obfuscating back then as well. Right. Um, So the Organic Act established the National Park Service. And they said, okay, you're going to be in the Department of Interior. And at the time, there were 35 national parks, monuments, and also reservations that were already under control of the Department of Interior. Obviously, the Bureau of Indian Affairs was made much later and runs the reservation part of the show now. But the National Parks and Monuments were officially under the purview of the National Park Service as of 1916. Well, and so did some of the, do you know if some of the monuments and things that the the Forest Service and those kind of people had were then merged into this? Or is that the original 35 or is that 35 combined? No, it was, it was 35 combined at the okay. time. Yeah, so that was all the parks and monuments. I think there were 24 parks. Okay. And, yeah, and 11 monuments. Yep. So you, you've got a quote in here from the Organic Act, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Mm-hmm. So 
Woodrow Wilson signs this act, and it says, The service thus established shall promote and regulate the use of the federal areas known as national parks, monuments, and reservations by such means and measures as conform to the fundamental purpose of the said parks, monuments, and reservations, which purpose is to conserve the scenery and the natural and historic objects and the wildlife therein, and to provide for the enjoyment of the same in such manner and by such means as will leave them unimpaired for the enjoyment of future generations." So that's already the, the kind of the leave no trace methodology before it had a name and stickers. Right, exactly. Um, I, I read a lot of stuff about how, you know, when Yellowstone was first made, they kind of planted the seeds for this and the future mission statement of the National Parks Service. And so this is, you know, this is kind of it. And it's awesome. You could write this today. And it just, it feels like exactly how I feel what the National Park should do, too. So that's pretty neat. But that still didn't tie everybody together, actually. I would have thought that that would have been everything that existed got put then, but it still took another 20 years later almost to get everybody under one roof, actually. Right. So in 1933, the, I guess you would call them assets, of (laughs) the War Department and the Forest Service Parks and Monuments and the National Monuments in D.C. were all put under the umbrella of NPS. Right, exactly. So in 1916, NPS was formed, and at the time, they shoved everything together, but there were still some holdovers from the War Department and, like I said, that private um, entity that ran the monuments in D.C. But now by 33, this reorganization, (laughs) which seems like a really governmental thing to do, right? It's not even 20 years later, and they already do a major reorg. (laughs) (laughs) yeah um and then stuff got really busy for the next well for the next 30 40 years really yeah so there was a lot going on in terms of uh, things being added into their areas of responsibility and then in the 60s and 70s there were all kinds of acts that dealt with endangered species uh, wilderness and wildlife scenic rivers so All of this did add more responsibility, but it also brought with it more funding and more protection for the natural areas. Right, exactly. Um, There was another sort of resurgence of a a group of bills, and this is all linked in on um, one of the National Park websites that we'll have the link for in here, um, that provided even more protection. And I mean, these are stuff that, you know, we still follow today. So it seems like we're still, as a nation, pretty proud of the National Park Service, and all the national parks and monuments that we have. I know every time I go, it's always really busy. (laughs) It is. And, you know, you might think of the national parks, you should go to the visitor center because you might think the visitor center is uh, a building with one or two people that hang out in it and answer questions if you have them uh, with some old displays. That's not at (laughs) all the case. The National Park Service has done an amazing job at outreach and education. Man, they really have. Um, my kiddo, whenever we go, he wants to go to the visitor center so he can buy a stuffed animal. But <laughs> um, right. that's why he gets excited. But they're really amazing treasure troves. And most national parks, especially the bigger ones, have you know multiple visitor centers. And a very inexpensive thing, because I know, you know you're on vacation and there's a lot of stuff to buy, even in national parks. But one cool thing that they have are these national park passports. And they've had these for quite a while. Um, I bought mine well over 10 years ago and you collect these little stamps. And so it's a passport 
and it's got pictures of the national parks and it comes with a big map and then in every visitor center there's a little stamp in every park and some of the stamps are just normal sort of cancellation stamps with the dates and some of them have other cool stuff like Yellowstone there's a couple of them that have like Buffalo and Lassen Volcanic has like a really cool volcano stamp and so that's something really neat my kids just recently gotten into collecting those stamps so that's always a really fun thing and a reason to visit all the different visitor centers at the park yes and if you go i think i have mentioned this on here before at one point but if you start talking about geology and say that you're curious about the geology (laughs) every time what's going to happen is somebody is going to turn around and be like hey hey go go get sue or some somebody (laughs) And someone's going to come out of a back room and be so excited that somebody wants to talk about the geology of their park because that's oh, their man. thing. It's so it's so true. Um, it's so true. We, uh, on a field trip, I've been to this place on field trips lots of times, but so the Grand Canyon is north of Flagstaff, right? But right outside of Flagstaff, kind of almost in town, is Sunset Crater. And so Sunset Crater mm-hmm. is a national monument. I don't know if you've ever been to that one before, John. I have not. It is beautiful. Um, but what's great about their visitor center, they have an amazing campground. It's really great. Awesome geology walks. But their visitor center has these big photo murals on the wall. And one of the photo murals is of people taking PMAG samples. <laughs> <laughs> I took my class there last year, which consisted of, you know, half of my graduate students and half of my advisor's graduate students. So they're all doing PMAG and they got so excited and exactly that thing happened. Joe came out from the back to talk about the PMAG <laughs> things. And, but it was great because we wound up exchanging cards and he said there's still a lot more work to be done. And so I actually have a student right now out at the USGS in Flagstaff who's doing some work. So I know he's going to go back out there and visit that ranger and it was super great. <laughs> oh, yeah. And you learn so much because they're, they're used to folks coming through that are interested but maybe don't have a geology background. Right. So they're kind of used to giving the the normal spiel about what happened at their park. But if somebody comes in that's genuinely interested in the geology, uh, <laughs> they get just really excited. And it's an opportunity to learn a lot of things and make sure you've got a map with you of the park. Because every time I've done this, there's been some points made on it and said, go here and look at this and go here and look at this. <laughs> exactly. Man, that's so, that's so true. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's so true. And we wound up having to, he brought another uh, ranger out. I wanted to say a junior ranger, but that's another program. <laughs> he brought a younger ranger out and had us explain paleomagnetism to him because he's like he doesn't believe me (laughs) it was just the best time and it was you know if we hadn't have said anything that experience wouldn't have happened like it still would have been great but it wouldn't have been as good as it was so and i do think it's where you should start your visit uh, because you could potentially a lot of these parks are so big and you may only have a day or two days there Uh, You could potentially miss some things that you would really enjoy. But if you go and you say, okay, I'm interested in hiking and this is my comfort level in terms of how far I'm going to hike in a day. uh, And this is what I'm interested in seeing. You'll get some really great recommendations on what to do with your time. And that sort of leads into something that you hear a lot of 
that we're loving our parks to death. I read, I mean, I read a lot of sort of Western blogs and Western magazines that talk a lot about national parks. And that's something you hear a lot. And that kind of goes into this because what do you think of when you think of Yellowstone? Like, what's the one thing you think about? What you think of, you think of Old Faithful. Right, exactly. And so if you have to triage, Yellowstone is huge. I think people don't realize this. It it (laughs) is massive. (laughs) Yeah, it's like, it's 60 miles between visitor centers. It's huge. And it's kind of a big circle. And so you can fight the crowds at Old Faithful, or you can ask a ranger who's going to say, why don't you go over here to Norris Geyser Basin, which is full of geysers, all this hydrothermal activity. There's animals. It's awesome. Why don't you go there instead? Or go to Mammoth Hot Springs, where there's hardly anyone because it's so far from sort of the main entrance. And that's what you need to do. You know, be open-minded. Yeah, Old Faithful's cool, but I remember Norris Geyser Basin in way more vivid detail because it was such an interesting landscape and there were not the throngs and throngs of people. So you can still find plenty of wilderness in these parks. Oh, yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Yeah, and the rangers are the people to start off with, you know. Right, so... You had on the list here, we, we've talked a lot about national parks that we've visited before. You know, every summer we kind of had a a national parks rundown because you're generally going through them. Uh, <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but you, you had on here that we should pick a couple of the top national parks that we've enjoyed and uh, share a little bit about them. So what, what was your first pick? Well, my first pick is Canyonlands. And like you just said, we've done this before, but for people just new to the show or that just want to hear us talk about how excited we get again, <laughs> um, <laughs> Canyonlands is one of my favorite, but I'm going to let you talk about that because you picked it as well. Um, and so I'm going to substitute that one with Crater Lake. So Crater Lake has been on my list for a long time, but it's one I've never made it to. Oh, man. It was a part of our Western tour last year, and it was unbelievable. We pulled in at 11 o'clock at night. It was pitch black. Couldn't see anything. I didn't care if a bear ate me. I was so tired. <laughs> like, it was unreal. And to wake up and go to Crater Lake, it was a surreal landscape. I can't even, I can't even describe how surreal it looked. But I will say <laughs> the best part, and if you're up in the Pacific Northwest or like Rocky Mountain or anything like that, you'll hear a lot about these little animals called pikas. And they're related to rabbits. They live in really high alpine areas. So, you know, 10,000 plus feet. And they look like little, well, they're legomorphs. So people call them boulder bunnies. Really cute. Wait, wait a second. Legomorphs? Right. It's, it's a family within the, the larger order of sort of rabbits and stuff. No? Is that not a, a common word for people? No, I think you're a little too deep in the biology side there. <laughs> um, there's actually a bad guy in one of my kids' children's books called Dr. Legomorph, and it's this little crazy rabbit. <laughs> <laughs> but I digress. Uh, anyway, <laughs> so these pikas, which are the cutest things I've ever lived, the ranger, had a, they had a junior ranger um, program. So a bunch of kids came, and he read a book about him. And my child, who desperately loves Pokemon... <laughs> kept correcting him to call them pikas 
like Pikachu. <laughs> and he would actually raise his hand in front of everyone. And every time the ranger said Pika, he would say, they're called Pikas. <laughs> so it will always have a special place in my heart for my obnoxious child who <laughs> tried to correct this poor ranger. <laughs> right. <laughs> but what about you? <laughs> Well, my first pick is going to be Arches National Park. That's a good one. It has a lot of the things I love is weird mechanical features, erosion <laughs> features. Uh, there's a really nice textbook uh, set of fault offsets across the road from the entrance. Oh, wow. Wow. That I, I really love looking at, and I've got some nice pictures of and have pointed a lot of people to. And... It is one of those parks where you know, you're talking about being able to go and find some wilderness. Uh, everybody goes to, you know, kind of the more photogenic arches, right? Right. Mm -hmm. There are some arches uh, that are way out. I mean, you have to hike several miles to get to them. But I did one of these trails, and I saw maybe one person from a distance. Oh, Wow the entire time I was out there and I was able, you know, I found this really nice, very small arch, but the lighting was really cool. And there was a tree that had fallen and I was able to like set up a tripod and get my camera out, take my time. And I got some beautiful shots. I actually have one hanging poster size in my living room. Oh, nice. Yeah. I've from this. some of those, I guess. Yeah. Um, that's yes that's exactly one of those things where did you find that information about where to go did you ask a ranger of course <laughs> <laughs> um also if there are any other ridiculously nerdy um sort of environmental geeks the edward abbey so he was a big deal back in the 60s and 70s he the monkey wrench gang wrote all these really environmental books but desert solitaire is one and it's about him being a ranger in arches during the off season. And he's, it's in the sixties. He's way back in this outpost where nobody goes. And that book is amazing. I actually bought it at arches and read it and it's unbelievable. It's been a while since I read it, but it seems like, didn't he live in a, an old airstream or something? Yeah. 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 I don't even think it was like as nice as that. Um, it was a trailer. He had some snakes. It's, it's pretty funny. Right. <laughs> like, <laughs> there's some really great stories in it. So Yep, that one that one's near and dear to me as well. But my so, next one is much colder than that. <laughs> yeah, so so what's your second pick? Uh probably Glacier National Park in Montana. Another one I have not been to. Man, that's why I did it on purpose, I guess. <laughs> um <laughs> so I first went to Glacier when my office mate during my masters, her research was outside of there and we went up there for 3 weeks and so when we were done sampling, we are like, we're going to go to this national park because we're right here and it's way worth it. And it was amazing. <laughs> like, I can't even describe how amazing it is. There's one road. I mean, Glacier's huge. The, the actual national park is huge. But there is one road that sort of transects it, and that's uh, going to the Sun Road. Okay. Um, and this road goes up through Logan Pass. It doesn't open until July most years there's that much snow wow <laughs> uh, yeah and when you see as you're going up and this is the same in rocky mountain national park there's these 
antenna-looking things. Sometimes they're just sticks on the side of the road, and they're really tall. They're like 15 foot tall. And what that is for is so the first plow trucks through know where the road is so they don't go down the side of the mountain. (laughs) (laughs) Like, that is terrifying to me. Um, Yes. (laughs) And a lot of going to the Sun Road, I think, was built um, by the Civilian Conservation Corps. I'm not super sure of that, but it definitely looks like it. I know it was built um, a long time ago, way back then. And it's just beautiful. Those beautiful Lake McDonald pictures are really iconic, and that's all in Glacier National Park. I've seen grizzly bears there. They're super scary. (laughs) Super (laughs) scary. (laughs) Um, But, yeah, and it it closes in October. The road does. So it's uh, it's transected by waterfalls. It's just an amazing drive. So Glacier is definitely worth it if you're up around that, that area. The mountains in... Montana just looks so huge. Yeah. And <laughs> it's it's high on my list to go there. Oh, yeah. I, I think I need to go west and north. I seem to have not hit anything other yeah. than the southwest. <laughs> well, you can get stuck in the southwest. I'll give you that. <laughs> like, there's yeah. a lot of great stuff there. <laughs> <laughs> so the last one that I picked, and you'd picked it as well, was Canyonlands. Mm-hmm. Again, I picked it because I'm a geomechanics nerd. Um, <laughs> you just like to see all these broken rocks everywhere. <laughs> yeah, broken rocks, weird, weird erosion patterns. Uh, this park is massive. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so this park is, uh, let's see, it is 337,598 acres. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so that's that's pretty large. Uh, And so there are these areas. There's Island in the Sky. uh, There's the Needles, and there's the Maze in the park. And these are different districts. I only had time to go to one, and I spent roughly a day and a half. Mm -hmm. And I didn't really even have time to see a lot of that. But I did Island in the Sky. Yeah, that's that's the one that I've been to the most there as well. the other place that I spent time in in Canyonlands is Upheaval Dome. And for geologists, this is a really cool place. Yeah. So I actually do think I got to see this when I was there. It's, I mean, all of this is a little ways from Moab, but I think I, I based in Moab for quite a while. Right. And mm-hmm. did get to see this because there was some debate about exactly what formed it. And there's a lot of really messed up structure. <laughs> Oh, man, it is. And so there's cool structure, just like you said, as a rock mechanicist, but Upheaval Dome is just that. It's this dome, and it's been eroded out, and anyone would walk up to it and say, hey, that's a meteor crater, but maybe not. (laughs) Right, and, you know, we were talking about this a little bit offline. You said that you think that people have kind of settled on it being an impact structure, and from what I can tell by poking around on the internet, that seems to be true uh, kind of the idea is it's 170 million years old or less right um right exactly so 60 million is one that they've thrown out there too and saying that it's a pretty big crater and i guess the question is you know didn't find the meteorite so you've got to look for all these other markers as to whether it's an impact crater but there's a lot of erosion within the crater like these big alluvial fans coming down off the sides and then also you have a lot of tectonic stuff going on and so it's been kind of geologically messed up 
Um, and it was kind of hard to tell. Uh, the other theory is that it's a collapsed salt dome, which actually happens a lot out in the West. You've got salt. Yeah. I mean, salt flows, right? Much differently than a rock would. And then you can come through and dissolve that salt with groundwater and then you get collapse. And so that's what people thought it was too. But I think the impact crater is the preferred theory as of the moment. Well, and salt's responsible for a lot of the other features, things like in arches mm-hmm. that we've talked about. Right. So right. It, pl- it plays a pretty important role. But yes. before we go on too long, I think we should go to a uh, everybody's favorite segment of the show, which is related this week, and it's Fun Paper Friday. Yay! <laughs> you picked this paper out, and it's called Measuring Recreational Visitation at U.S. National Parks with Crowdsourced Photographs by Sessions et al.? Yeah, I thought you would like this one. I I did, because it gets to use programming to solve a problem. <laughs> yep, there was a, I was, I, I saw it, I was like, cool, and then I read it, and I said, cool, I didn't understand any of this, but John will, so. <laughs> <laughs> Even though I found it, it's totally going to be you, because, man, there is a lot of programming and statistics involved, but this is kind of solving a really cool problem. Yeah, so... Collecting visitor data at national parks or anywhere really is an expensive problem. Right. You have to have somebody whose job it is to do the counting, the tallying. You have to go ask people and hope that you get a representative sample of where people are from, why they came, what they saw. Mm -hmm. And maybe that data is good. Maybe it's not. But it's really important to determining things like the funding structure. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> which is important for these things because so many people visit the national parks, but they don't get a lot of, I mean, they get a lot of money for them, but you know, not as much and running, getting data is really expensive and probably overlooked. So parks can only afford to do this if they're lucky twice a year. And if they're not lucky, none at all or once a year. Well, but guess what everybody does when they go to a national park. <laughs> Yay. Internet and pictures. <laughs> They take selfies. And <laughs> <laughs> I, I almost wanted to see that statistic, <laughs> just regular yeah. pictures versus European selfie sticks, but they didn't, they didn't break that out. <laughs> so everybody takes a lot of photos, and the wonderful thing now about the cameras and phones being so good is most people are not insane and do what I do, which is carry a separate bag that has a camera and two lenses and a tripod strapped on the side. They, they take their phone and they'll pull it out of their pocket and they'll snap some pictures. And as good as cameras are getting, who knows, they're probably better than mine. Uh, yeah, they probably are. But I mean, you got to admit, John, you still take pictures with your phone. Oh, I definitely do even take pictures with my phone. Even though you're doing all that. Yeah, even though you're doing all that, you still do it. So this is really great. And of course, because we are humans, we can't just keep those to ourselves. We have to share them. Right. You have to post photos that would make me jealous of the fact that you're in Glacier, (laughs) for example. Right, exactly. And a lot of people post photos on Flickr. The other advantage of everybody using their phone to take these photos is that the GPS data gets tagged in the photo. So there's an EXIF data set that says you were looking north and it was this time of day and these were the Latlon coordinates that you were at. Uh, Yeah, that's both terrifying and really cool especially for the people in this study because that's the stuff that they can use and say maybe there's a cheaper way to do these 
surveys, which has been done before. Like, this isn't the first time it's been done. Um, they, Keeler et al., from last year, uh, they say they used photos to model visitation to Minnesota and Iowa lakes and then used that sort of in the, in the tally for how much water do we need to put into these lakes because those are all damned man-made lakes, I'm guessing, that they were talking about, and how much does that cost, more importantly. Right. But so what you can do is Flickr has an API, which is an application programming interface or a way to talk to their service. And you can query for photos and metadata of photos that are public. And so obviously we're not searching through people's private stuff. Yes. (laughs) But when you do this with the modern GIS technology, you can draw a box and say, of all the photos that were in this box, you know, give me the timestamps, give me their location. And you can do things like tag what feature people were most likely at. Did you know about this before reading this paper? That you could do this or that you could query? That you could query. Yes. Wow. Creepy. (laughs) Because there is a Twitter API, and a while back I wrote an application that went through and did all kinds of earthquake searching. Uh, Of course you did. Okay. And that that was fun. I found a bunch of funny uh, Oklahoma earthquake tweets yeah about, about that donkey on somebody's, uh, somebody's uh, not that trailer. one okay. but <laughs> um, anyway, so it, a lot of services of Flickr, twitter facebook uh have these apis to allow programmers to interact with their data and do interesting things uh that's both terrifying and you know i mean this is what we call big data right right and by being able to do this geofencing and identify where people are roughly and knowing that you've got uh, a timestamp, you can collect a time series. And if you assume that the fraction of people that use phones is roughly constant Mm -hmm. of all visitors throughout the year, which is probably okay, Mm -hmm. you get a representative data set of how many people are at the park and you can calibrate that and you can get an idea of what they're looking at. This was mind blowing to me because I mean, this could replace all these sort of visitor surveys and I think it's kind of cool because it probably takes out some bias because you think that people filling out a visitor survey are going to want to appear, you know, more engaged maybe than they really are. And so maybe these don't lie. I thought that was an interesting point in this. Well, and the other thing is you don't have to rely on, you know, going up to somebody and saying, do you have a second? Can you tell me where you're from? Can you tell me what you saw today? Right. Exactly. And this, people, they often have where they reside, uh, you know, like we're from Pennsylvania, on their Flickr account, and you can grab that information and start pulling statistics on how many in-state visitors versus how many out-of-state visitors you have at different times a year. Right. And so their model didn't do so hot for international visitors, though. And I wonder if that's just sort of a, maybe Flickr isn't used so much internationally, it could be. It could be a low-end problem, too. Yeah, yeah that's uh, true. You just don't have that many Flickr users that are international, that are at national parks at the same time. Right. So what they did was they actually, they obviously mined this data and then compared it to the National Park Service actual surveys. And there's a whole bunch of graphs in here, uh, things like total annual visits and where these people are visiting and where they're from. And, I mean, they line up very statistically significantly 
Yeah, it was amazing to me. Yeah. I mean, so this this is normalized to mm-hmm. like percentage total annual visits, mm-hmm. uh, but most of them tracked dead on or almost dead on. Yeah. Uh, the the Kobuk Valley was way different. Yeah, and there were a couple, and I wonder if that's just because in some of these places, like there's an overabundance. Well, see, like in Yellowstone, it's the NPS surveyed users is different than the Flickr photographs. So I wonder if it's people saying, oh, yeah, we went there when it's not somewhere they went, but they think they should have gone or they're planning to and then didn't go. Something like that. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, but the Glacier one is like dead on. It's the exact same graph. (laughs) Yeah, and these were done. So they they calculated if five users went and each took one photo, that's five. And if one user went and took five photos, that's just one. So they are taking into account if there's one person that posts 2,000 photos. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. And there's a lot of those different things that they take into account. I I felt that they were really robust. I had a list of, well, what about this? And then they wind up addressing it, you know? Right. It was was quite well set up, I felt like. Yeah. And so the actual monthly visits and predicted monthly visits after they calibrated their model Mm -hmm. are incredibly closely correlated. Mm -hmm. Though, watch out on the plot. (laughs) (laughs) It is logarithmic. (laughs) <laughs> on both axes uh, i know you hate that but it does show a lot of data right i mean there's a lot of oh, arcs in there well, they... y- you have to plot it longer you're yes. going from a hundred actual monthly visits to uh a thousand thousand yeah yeah so <laughs> so you gotta do that um, yeah you, you have to but they they really do a good job in here and I would be really excited to see the National Park Service, it says they cooperated on this, Mm -hmm. uh, start using some of this and even do some things like uh, I've seen with some of the Microsoft technology, people have been able to take crowdsourced photos and create 3D reconstructions of things just because there's so many photos from so many different angles. Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. This just goes even more. You should always take statistics (laughs) And you should definitely be able to understand them and you should be a proficient programmer because you can get a job anywhere. That's what this paper says to me. <laughs> yeah. And they, they also have a plot that's distance between your home and park mm-hmm. yep. and the probability that you attended. That's pretty which interesting. was interesting. And it, it was not quite as good uh, in terms of correlation. A lot of the parks yeah. were very good. There were a few like Rocky Mountain was way off, which was interesting. Yeah, because that one's pretty, you know, heavily visited. Right. So. Uh, not exactly sure why that was off, and it didn't seem like they had an exact answer either. No. Um, I thought this was interesting, too, is that they say in here, and this is a 2016 paper, um, but they suggest in the conclusions that, you know, managers of these national parks might be able to leverage modern portable technology to improve the quantity and quality of the data they collect by encouraging visitors to contribute images or, you know, to connect to parks through other social media. And I think that's definitely happening because 98% of my Twitter feed is listeners that we have, you, and national park pictures. (laughs) Right. So um, I think they're already doing that. And so that's interesting to start getting. And I know I've tweeted a bunch of uh, pictures that have hashtags suggested by the national parks. So you can move off of Flickr and do this with, well, you said Twitter has this too, right? 
Yeah, I don't think the Twitter image API is nearly this detailed. Uh, because, okay. But it lets you do tweet searches. So you could search on hashtags. You could search on keywords. You could refine it in time, uh, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think they are doing a good job at this. And it's always nice to see a governmental program that saves money. And I think right. that that's, <laughs> that's sort of what this was getting at, is that this is cheaper and just as accurate and potentially even more useful than the kind of surveys they already do at the national parks. Absolutely. Well, that was a great one. And we do have a few listener submitted fun papers. I'm saving one of them for next week because (laughs) the title alone made me very happy. Uh, (laughs) But if you want to send us fun papers or any kind of feedback or tell us what your favorite national park is, Shannon, how can they get a hold of us? Uh, you can email us, show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. Visit us at our website, don'tpanicgeocast.com. Um, John is on Twitter at geo underscore Lehman. I'm at Shannon Doolin. Together we are at Don't Panic Geo. And we've been chatting it up in our swung.rocks uh, Don't Panic chat room on Slack. Yeah, there's been a lot of interesting stuff going on in there, including somebody pointing out that the height of the David had been mispublished. Yes, yeah. In textbooks was... and caused problems when people went over to do a scan. Uh, yes, <laughs> I thought that was very interesting as well. So um, definitely come over there. I, I have a lot of fun with that. Probably I pay too much attention to it and not enough attention to my students' emails, but <laughs> such is life. <laughs> well, until next week, remember don't panic. It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies.